With all the talk about mobility and autonomy, how will that affect your local car dealer? The head of the National Auto Dealers weighs in on this and more on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. We're going to be talking about car dealerships because there's so much coming in that business right now. And we've got somebody who really knows what's going on there because he's the chairman of the National Automobile Dealers Association. Jeff Carlson, thanks for joining us on today's show. Thank you for having me, John. Also joining us today, Gary Vasilash with Automotive Design and Production Magazine. And Mike Kalias with the Wall Street Journal. Great having the both of you here, too. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Jeff, let's start talking about mobility, autonomous cars. It seems to be on the verge of upheaving this automotive industry. From a dealer's standpoint, how do you look at this? We may be on the verge, some people say, of where people no longer buy cars, but they're going to buy their mobility instead. Well, there's a lot of different opinions on that, John. And, of course, uh, I like to go with uh, Mark Twain saying, uh, the rumors of my uh, death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, the automobile dealers are, are still, uh, matter of fact, uh, not still, we, we just celebrated our best year ever in uh, 2015, and we're on track to maybe exceed that in 2016, but uh, not trying to celebrate too much and get back to your question. I think that when the mobility models start to um, come together, coalesce, you're going to see that uh, car dealers are... Uh, as they are in many things, the solution, part of the part of part of uh, moving this uh, policy thinking forward, um, and not and, and not going away. But I've heard a lot of people try and make that argument. So, so do you think that as we go to cars that have more autonomous capabilities, that they'll become increasingly expensive and therefore more difficult for your members to be able to sell to the public? Well, yeah, there's um, um, the question of affordability is, is a huge issue. Um, dealers are interested in keeping the product as affordable as, as possible. Uh, you, you know, there's a certain bankers association publication that has shared with, uh, I mean, it's out there in the public that the consumer who's been driving who's been driving our economy through the automotive sector uh, is, is having a difficult time uh, affording uh, all the, uh, not, only, not only the enhancements, technical enhancements, but all the regulatory requirements that are out there and some of the other things that are happening uh, uh, that come out of Washington, D.C. But um, first of all, y- y- you all know that, and I'm, I'm not the expert, but there's the five stages of uh, getting to where you're ultimately going to be in a driverless car, I believe. And let's not confuse, and oftentimes it is confused by the consumer, that um, a driverless car um, is the same as an autonomous car. A lot of the autonomous stuff is being integrated into the product today and uh, we're promoting it and selling it to our consumers and uh, we're working very hard to make sure that, uh, that we're part of the transitioning of the fleet. You know, uh, I, 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 I've said this before on many, on many occasions, uh, since the downturn, uh, 
auto dealers have contributed to the economic recovery of the United States by selling, uh, by registering it's over 100 million vehicles now. Uh, and the reason that's important is because the policymakers want us to have safer cars out there. They want us to have uh, more efficient cars in terms of fuel economy, in terms of emissions. And then they want us to have the technological advancements that are the stair steps to what you're talking about. Well, obviously, having a record year last year and coming off from those uh, seven and a half years that uh, we've been transitioning the fleet, I make the argument that, number one, the consumer is voting for uh, new cars, new trucks, and oh, by the way, in the last year, that number flipped. Uh, we went 60-40 to 40-60. A lot of trucks. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and that's driven by the consumer. And look, car dealers are, are here to take care of the consumer. So we advocate for them because they come in and buy the vehicles that, um, that work well for, for our society. Now you guys have talked a lot about the affordability factor. And sure. right now, is that, you know, I think the premise is that regulation drives a lot of cost into these cars, and at some point the consumer's not going to be able to afford it. But it, right now, you've got record volumes and you've got record transaction prices. It's almost like the consumer's not phased by whatever extra costs are going into the car, they're, they're eating it up. So you know, when, when, at what point do we need to be worried about that? That's a great question, and we worry about it all the time. I, I, again, the study is out there that says the consumer is at the brink right now. And I don't want to test that, uh, frankly. I, I'd like to continue the role that we're on. Obviously, uh, the industry will at some point in time plateau. But right now, we're still, we're still looking at a potential uh, record year this year. So, and again, that, that's good for the consumer and, uh, and for all the sorts of things that the policymakers would like to accomplish. And it's good for dealers too, let's face it. Um, we, we enjoy the fact that we're able to sell new and used vehicles uh, to, to all of our friends and neighbors in the United States great business. Jeff, uh, another big upheaval in uh, the car dealer business is here comes Tesla and it doesn't want to use the franchise dealers that you represent. It wants to sell direct in its own stores. It can do that in all but four states, including our home state here of Autoline in Michigan. <laughs> now Tesla has sued the state of Michigan in federal court. Are you following this case? Because the way I read it, and I'm not a legal expert, if Tesla wins this battle, it's won the war. I mean, a federal ruling is going to open up all 50 states. Um, I, you, you know, I'm not an attorney, and while I follow the case, I follow it from the perspective that um, the states have the, uh, the, the states have the right to. Matter of fact, they it, it's their obligation, it's their duty to establish the regulatory scheme that they'd like to have for the uh, people that reside in their states. I, as a matter of fact, I was, I sat on the Motor Vehicle Dealer Board in Colorado for seven years. Um, and, and of course, we had, had our scheme. But the point is, we, uh, the, the, again, it goes back to affordability. The states want to make sure that the customer is protected, that they get the best deal, that, it's, that, that, that somehow consumerism is working for them, not against them. 
In the case of Tesla, the model from the manufacturer uh, directly to the consumer, um, th that's a retail model. And uh, um, Elon Musk even said so himself the other day. He just, I, I think it was in Fortune Mag, it's been in several publications, but I, I saw it in Europe in Insight something, but Fortune Magazine said something about uh, Elon uh, finding out that there was discounting of his product. And he says, we're not going to discount that. Now, what that sounds like to me is somebody's paying too much. And um, that's unfortunate. Uh, we, we move the market to where the consumer can afford it. If the states don't think that that is the right model, that's the policy decision that the state legislators and the state regulators need to make. And I think the governor in the state of uh, Michigan had it right. That's what I know about that. And yet we, we still have people in the state, even though you're, Tesla is banned from selling cars, traveling to other states to be able to buy the cars that they want. That's the beauty of the market. I've sold cars as far away as Finland, out of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. That's the beauty of the internet. You know what? The market, uh, the, the market should dictate that. The consumer has the opportunity unparalleled in history to find exactly what they want because of the beauties of the internet. You can go online, you can find it, you can negotiate the price, and oh, by the way, everybody talks about uh, there needs to be a different model. Well, if I'm selling an excursion to a guy in Finland, what's wrong with the model? Well, well there isn't, but why have to go through a franchise dealer to do it? Well. I, I, I think I, I just made, well, maybe I didn't make the case clear enough. We compete, and we compete fiercely for that customer's business. And that's why people, and oh, by the way, we also, uh, we also create the market. We do two things. First of all, when you bring in your car to trade it in, we establish the market value of that. Now then, there's a lot of difference of opinions. Even though you've got aggregation of prices, when that car comes in, each of them is in different condition and uh, different mileage, all those things. And our market may be stronger for a, a particular product in Western Colorado than it is in Southern California as it is in Minnesota. That's the beauty of having uh, dealers that compete. Um, the, if, if you had manufacturing, matter of fact, uh, if you have manufactured direct sales, it, it becomes the, you, you, you start with a one price deal. The, I don't see that they can, uh, how they address the market issue of getting the most for your used car. And there's a lot of people that are trying to sort that out, but we're a little ways away from that. Um, and then again, back to, the, back to knowing the market and understanding what people want in the market give you a case in point. In Florida or Texas, I doubt that Subaru's market share is much more than 1%. In Colorado, it's, uh, it's over 11%. Uh, that's the market difference. Now, the manufacturers would have more of a global view while the dealer has a specific market point of view. We, uh, you have to understand, dealers are special. And when I say special, we, we deal with the consumer on a face-to-face -face basis. 40% um, of our members at NADA sell less than 300 uh, uh, vehicles a year, so they're small. And what that means is they meet you in church, they meet you at the football game, they meet you um, 
at the celebration of birth, celebration of death. They meet you in the community somewhere. When you're talking to a car dealer, um, and obviously I'm not talking about in uh, urban settings where you don't have as much of this, but you have a lot of it. They are community-based people. It is not a, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Being a car dealer is a lifestyle where we interface with uh, people just like you. And we build relationships and we keep them over a lifetime. Um, now then, when, as, as you try to depersonalize that, I don't know where that's going to go, mm -hmm. but I'm here for the dealers. So, so you, mentioned, you mentioned the internet. Is, is that changing the interface with the dealership? Absolutely. I, I, I mean, uh, it changes day by day. And we have um, uh, a lot of people that bring us new great ideas all the time. Matter of fact, over the last three years, I probably um, and when I say I, my management team and I have been involved with more uh, vendors providing us uh, new ideas on how we can market cars on the internet, how we can uh, uh, reach out to consumers, how we are able to finance uh, car different, different ideas in terms of financing um, and educating our people, uh, you know, but every day it changes because of the internet. But, but are you finding a younger generation saying, gee, I buy everything online. Why don't I just buy a car online? Why do I need to go to a physical store when, you know, I open my mailbox and lo and behold, there's a new delivery today? Well, well there's, a, there's, a, there's a difference. Somebody has to hold the inventory somewhere. And that's us, dealers. Mm -hmm. I view it when I have the discussion with young people, they say, well, I, I just want to order something on Amazon. Well, I say, well, call Ford and see what you can do, or call, I mean, call Tesla, and they don't bring you the car. You call me, and you're in Finland, or you're in Detroit, and I have the car, um, you, you know, in Amazon, you want the product, you pay for the freight, the product shows up on your doorstep. I can do the same thing. If you're willing to pay the freight from where I'm at, to, or a lot of people don't want to do that. They just hop on a plane and fly to us and pick up their vehicle. We, uh, I, I view the car dealer, and, and understand, car dealers uh, have been doing this for years. I know car dealers in rural South Dakota and in rural uh, Colorado, that a farmer says, man, my, my crop came in great, I saw that truck down on your lot, I'd like to have that. Well, we'll just drive it on out to you and then uh, I'll call the bank and uh, we'll settle up on it. And those sorts of relationships still exist. That's a different, and that's, that's not the internet cafe, that's the corner cafe, mm -hmm. okay? And that still exists in a, ever look at the map of the United States and you've got concentration population there, here, 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 but there's a lot of places where the corner cafe still works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, if it's not just, te I think people are attracted to Tesla because it's sort of, they look at it as sort of an Apple model where they can go to a store and it's, you know, it's a company store, but it's not, it's lo relatively low pressure. Then there's people, like Gary was saying, who would just prefer to do the, the entire process online. Your dealers are protected from that, from, from franchise laws and other things, but are there things that dealers could be doing to sort of come closer to meeting those people uh, on their terms? Well, I think uh, dealers do, uh, you, you've got to understand, if I don't meet you on your terms, I don't sell a car. 
the question, I, I think the question there is, is the experience in, in the salon or the boutique that, uh, that Tesla has, is that superior to the uh, experience that people have in, in the dealership? And I would tell you that it depends, everybody wants a different experience. Um, now, the, I, I can tell you that, um, again, there's a premium to be paid to, to have the, and by the way, Tesla is a fantastic uh, product. I, I mean, looking at their stuff, it's, it's Star Wars, but it's a premium product. I, I live in an upscale uh, market. I mean, I've got Aspen on one side and Vail on the other side, and a lot of people that can buy a lot of Teslas. But you know what? Again, it goes to the market. Um, uh, their X model is coming out. They'll probably sell some of those, but the S model for the last five years has not been a factor because in the wintertime it sits in the garage, as do my Mustangs. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I'd like to get your thoughts on what Cadillac's doing. It's got what they call this Project sure. Pinnacle. You mentioned 42% of your members sell fewer than uh, 300 it's cars. under 40, just under 40. I think okay. the ag exact number is right at 38%. Cadillac, as you well know, wants to get rid of 400 dealers. The average amount of cars each one sells is about 50 cars a year. Still turns into 20,000 cars over the course of a year. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that, of a factory coming in and trying to buy out dealers and get them out of the market? Well, I think it has to be the dealer's decision. The dealer will make, the dealer needs to make a business decision about the Pinnacle uh, program. Um, obviously, uh, Cadillac has decided that they need to take uh, some steps to keep their position or to improve their position is what they're hoping for in, in the luxury market. And uh, that's what that's what competition's all about. Um, I think that there is some history where uh, rural dealers have been removed from the market. I, I, once upon a time I was a Ford rep and I can name a whole bunch of towns that don't exist, that, where the, the towns exist. The dealership is no longer there. And while that town used to have huge domestic registrations, today there's no reason to buy a domestic car, so there, there are Asian and European cars all, all over the place. But one, it goes back to some, some old type thinking, and, and the world is changing, and we're all going to have to change with it. Um, but the family-owned dealership still serves a purpose, and I gotta tell you, if you're driving I-90 across South Dakota, or I had the experience, and there was a little bitty dealership in, um, uh, it was in uh, Chamberlain, not, yeah, it was in Chamberlain, South Dakota, and my diesel blew a uh, deal, and I was never so happy in my life to see a Ford dealership <laughs> there. I mean, I was like, I, I'm glad there's a Ford dealership there, and they fixed me. So, so, so you're in favor of more stores rather than fewer stores? I think, I think that, uh, uh, well, let me back up to something uh, the, where we started, mobility, okay? Mobility is going to come into the market in different ways, and I think the manufacturers already know this. Uh, at first I thought that mobility was going to be in urban markets, and then uh, traditional transportation would be in your rural markets. But then there's the suburban market that kind of crosses over, and I really hadn't thought about that, but uh, some people have helped me think through that a little bit, and so now I've adopted, you're gonna have urban, where mobility will be very important. Suburban, where a crossover, but the rural markets, the smaller markets, 
are, are going to be the traditional um, type, uh, the, the core the core products of the manufacturers will go to the rural markets. So they're going to be very interested. They should be interested if they want their core markets to, if they want their core products to end up in those uh, rural markets. That's a decision that uh, Cadillac's going to have to make. It's also a decision that the, um, uh, that, that the dealer's going to make. And, and when they make that, they need to make that as a business decision. Uh, oftentimes, emotion gets in the way of good business judgment. But again, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, right. So this has been a, a year where dealers in your organization have had to deal with um, the situation with Volkswagen. How, how, how is that being worked out? Is it being worked out satisfactory in terms of the dealers who are, who are undoubtedly losing money by not being able to sell vehicles? Um, we've been patient uh, watching this, and uh, the, the reason is Nobody really knew how Volkswagen was going to respond uh, to, to the situation. And uh, most recently, they announced uh, what they're thinking uh, in terms of helping the dealers. And it's on average, I think the number was, and correct me if I'm wrong, about a, a million eight per, uh, per store. Um, now, that doesn't mean that all stores are going to get a million eight. Based on your volume, it's, it's going to come in. That is such fresh news. I'm not able to tell you um, how the uh, Volkswagen uh, folks, the, the Volkswagen dealers feel about the manufacturer uh, uh, trying to help them in that way. What I can tell you is that NADA, from the start, facilitated the dialogue between the dealers, the dealer council, and the Volkswagen people. And that's been a, a very long process. And uh, we've been involved in it all the way through. And we'll see, uh, you, you know, how that's playing out for the dealers. It's been a tough thing for them, mm -hmm. very tough thing. Absolutely. So, as well as for, uh, it's caused, you know, um, stress with their uh, consumers as well. Mm -hmm. so. The huge uh, increase in recalls has been another thing that dealers have been dealing with. I know you guys have been vocal about um, the, you know, the manufacturers being able to get you the parts you need in time. Uh, I mean, is it is it NADA's, you know, because used car, it's illegal to sell a used car that's subject to a recall, if I'm correct, but a, a used car is a little bit of a gray area. Do you guys feel like, is NADA's position that it's incumbent on the dealer if a car passes through your hands and there's an, a an open safety recall on it that it gets fixed before it leaves the lot. If if there's a stop sale, on 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 uh, a stop drive, a big I, I do not drive on the car. You cannot. There's a federal penalty to for selling that car. You can't sell that car, a new car, and uh, you you can't sell it if it's a used car that has the same thing. But but here's <clears throat> here's where we're at. There are a myriad of recalls out there, and they're not all dangerous. Um, they impact consumer affordability, and I've already taken you through the fact that we're razor thin on, on how much it costs the consumer. If we were to tell a consumer that, and oh, by the way, we've, uh, we have this deal from J.D. Powers, this economic ass assessment of trade-in value, and the reduction caused by preventing auto dealers from selling vehicles with any open recalls. You come in and you have to buy a car, but you have an open recall, and all of a sudden, um, 
I have to ground it if, it, if the legislation hasn't occurred where that's the case, but if that were to be the legislation, then your car is going to be diminished in value as a trade-in because I might have to hold that for 60 days, up to two years. The average recall is 60 days to get parts. Uh, Peter Welch and I have written about that. You've probably seen it someplace out there. Um, and up to two years. Now, the holding cost on two years is, is extraordinary. And the other thing is it, um, we scratch our heads and try to understand why if NHTSA and the manufacturer says it's okay for all those people that are out there on the highway to drive those cars, but now they want to say that it needs to be grounded on my, uh, on my lot and it impacts you, and, and, and the impact is $1,200 on average up to 54, I think the top was $6,000, somewhere in there, 54, uh, somewhere. Uh, but let's say $1,200, you know, that's a make or break it deal for you buying a car. Now then, here's the, the crazy thing. Your car becomes worth less, and once we can perform the, re, uh, the recall, it becomes uh, valuable again. Where we're at is we need, to, we need to perform. We need to have the ability. We need the parts, we've said that. We need to be able to perform 100% of the recalls 100% of the time on 100% uh, of the cars. And that's what dealers do. We're motivated to do it. You'll hear a lot of stuff that says dealers, oh, think about it. A recall is the best direct mail program in the world. <laughs> I'm inviting the customer to come in, he gets a free repair on his car, and I'm gonna give him coffee while he's there, I'm going to talk to him, I'm going to show him the new cars that have the safer, lower uh, emissions, and uh, better fuel economy. What, what gets better than that for a dealer? And I get paid by the manufacturer. <laughs> by the way. Pretty good deal. Look, I'm afraid we're going to, going to have to wrap it up. We covered a lot here. Uh, mobility, autonomy, uh, Tesla going against the, the franchise system, Project Pinnacle at Cadillac, the Volkswagen one. Jeff Carlson, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Also, I forgot at the beginning of the show, I have to congratulate the NADA. You celebrate 100 years, 100th anniversary next year. That's that's pretty telling about the importance of an organization like the NADA. You know what, it's hard to last 100 years, but NADA has done it, and we're looking forward to the next 100 years. Thanks for having me today, John. Thanks so much, Jeff. Gary and Mike, I want to thank you guys, too, and of course, I want to thank all of you for having tuned in.